Boy, have you ever had your stupid mouth get you in trouble? It's like, yeah, how many times this week, right? I had one uh, last weekend. I had somebody came up to me and said, hey, did you meet so-and-so? It was this party I was at. And I said, yeah. I said, did you know she was pregnant? No. No, I did not notice she was pregnant. How can you not notice? She's like, eight months. I never notice when a woman is pregnant. She's like, ah, your scars is. Yeah, I made that mistake way in the past. I won't make that again, right? There's times we speak without thinking. There's times we say things that we're rushed to make ourselves look more important than we are, come across as better, more of an expert than we are. We take our overconfidence in one area and we imagine we have the same confidence in some other area to impress somebody with a story. And our stupid mouth gets us in trouble just because we didn't think before we speak. And that is not just true in our relationship with each other. It can also be true in our relationship with God. There's times that we genuinely think that we know better than God how to run the universe, how to run our lives, what is meaningless suffering and what is meaningful suffering. We actually think and say out loud things to God or we withdraw from God as if we don't need him because we really believe in our hearts that we know better than him how to run the universe. And in our series in the wild, we've been looking at the, the story of Job. And Job has about 30 plus chapters of people opening their stupid mouths and saying pretty stupid things to Job. Because Job has been through a hellish year, a hellish day. And his friends come up and they open their stupid mouth and say, You know, Job, the reason you're suffering is probably because you're a bad person. And then they say, well, no, the reason your kids died is probably because your kids had some wrongdoing in the world and and the universe is punishing them. And it's just horrific theology. It's horrible karma applied to his circumstance. And they get themselves in all kinds of trouble with their big, stupid mouth. Now, Job does a little, not as much as his friends. But Job also has some issues where he says, I had to finally put my hand over my mouth in the way I was interacting with God. And the premise here as we get to the end of Job is that in the presence of something great, we stop running our mouth and we learn how to shut our mouth. In the presence of something great, especially the beast we're going to look at today, we stop running our mouth all the time like we know everything and we know everything about everything. And instead of running our mouth, we're going to learn to maybe shut our mouth, have a little humility, Bring a little humility to our interactions with God. That's what Job's going to do. Now, a little, little philosophy, a little background on this. Up until 1755, in general, human beings, when evil was found in the world from natural disasters, people always struggled with why a good God would allow evil to happen. But in 1755 was the first time a natural disaster hit that the overall thinking of the human population came up with a new idea, a truly new idea. That evil was actually a reason that God didn't exist. Massive earthquake hits in Lisbon, Portugal area. Tens of thousands of people die. Voltaire, as the primary philosopher of the day, says this kind of evil, this kind of devastation, isn't something just to wrestle with. There's a God, we don't understand him, but we're here to serve him, which was the primary thinking from 1755 backwards. For the first time, Voltaire says, if there's this kind of evil and suffering... The new opening of our mouth of philosophy, the new way of thinking from the philosophers in Europe at the time, is evil is a reason a good God can't exist. 
as if suddenly we know better. And just know, prior to 1755, that was not even a thought that evil could disprove God. Now, Job's been wrestling with the idea of how can a good God allow this, but not that a good God doesn't exist. A couple, maybe, ways to think about this if you've wrestled with the problem of evil. Does evil mean good doesn't exist? Let me give you an illustration. Imagine uh, you're walking around town and you see some people with bad haircuts, right? You've all seen people with bad hair. Oh, they've got a bad haircut. Like, <laughs> I'm not sure what happened. You might want to go back, you know, kind of thing. Now, do bad haircuts mean that barbers don't exist? No, in fact, it might mean you got a bad haircut from a barber. It might mean you need a barber, but a bad haircut, unkept, uncombed, doesn't mean barbers don't exist. It means you need some more barber over there. You need to visit maybe a little more uh, God in that area of your life. My brother was kind of crazy. My brother loved crazy haircuts. And my parents were always trying to manage all kinds of crazy things with him. They eventually decided haircuts is not a battle we're going to fight. So my brother had a reverse Mr. T. Mohawk. Not here and here. And he was proud of this look. Now, was that an indication of unloving, uncaring parents? No, they just decided that was a battle they weren't going to fight. It was free choice. He had the ability to do that. He one time shaved his head and had the words polka put in the back of his head. Why? Who knows? I never understood my brother. Now, that didn't mean he didn't have parents. Didn't even mean he didn't have loving parents. It just meant that he made his own choices, right? And so bad haircuts don't mean barbers don't exist. Another example. Imagine a cave. So a group of cave dwellers, their whole life, their whole existence, they've lived in a cave. The whole civilization. 58 degrees in there. Nice and cool. And one day, a person from the outside stumbles into the cave, goes deep, deep back into the civilization. And when they get there, they come across the cave dwellers, living at 58 degrees. And they say, oh my goodness, you've lived here your whole life? Yes, we've lived here our whole life. It's better outside. There's no such thing as outside. Yeah, 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 there is. In fact, outside there's light. There's no such thing as light. Yeah, yeah, there is. No, there isn't. In fact, did you know that there's a giant fireball in the sky that warms all of the earth? Millions of degrees you know, coming across the universe and, and it keeps outside. It can get up to 70, 80, 90, even 100 degrees. No, it doesn't. There's no such thing as a giant fireball in the sky, light all around. Well, one of them decides that you coax them out of the cave. They're going to go prove you wrong. So they come out. They say, we have never needed a fireball. We've been fine without the fireball. We've never needed light. As they stumble out, they come across the sun. And, oh, my goodness, I can't even see it so bright. They couldn't even imagine something like this. And what they discover is not just the sun and not just light that's giving 70, 80, 90 degree weather. But their 58 degree weather in the cave was dependent upon that sun they'd never seen. Right? It wouldn't be 58 degrees in the cave if we had a cold, dark, and blown up sun. Right? So even if you don't say, I haven't had a lot of experience with God, I don't feel like I need God, I've never come across a need for God, I don't believe in God, there's what's called common grace. That there are certain aspects that God has warmed your life, provided good things in your life, marriage and family and talents. You are being warmed by a God, whether you've got a relationship with him or not. 
And he's calling you out of the cave of the common grace to experience the other gifts he has for you, even as you wrestle with good and evil. So just because you've never seen God doesn't mean he doesn't exist. Just because you've got a bad haircut doesn't mean that God, God doesn't exist. It might mean you need more of God's love in that area, more of God's comfort in that area. And yet when we sort of step back from all that and say, no, 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 evil means God doesn't exist, and we open our mouth, we presume we know better than God what he can and can't do. So what are some ways practically God's going to teach Job in the presence of something great, how can I stop running my mouth about knowing everything and learn how to shut it? Well, three things, three aspects. And I think this is going to help us keep our foot out of our mouth, especially in relationship with God. And he does that by introducing Job to this giant beast called the behemoth. And I think that's really the first point, is when I'm in the presence of something great, I start shutting my mouth. Right? Have you ever come to a place where suddenly you're, you're sort of talking along and you come across a great piece of artwork and you're like, wow. And you're sort of talking and chatting, but you're like suddenly in awe of this great thing. I went to Hawaii for my 10-year anniversary. And when I did, this guy said, oh, no, listen, this isn't on the map, but I've lived here my whole life. Uh, you're going to think I'm crazy, but there's this beautiful view of Hawaii you don't want to miss. So he says, we drove in this car. He says, you're going to get to this little bitty town on the edge of Oahu, and you're going to turn right and look like you're going into subdivision. That's exactly what it felt like. You're going to go two streets to a stop sign, turn left. You're going to go about 10 feet, and there's going to be a house there. And you're going to still think I'm crazy. You're going to turn right. You're going to go like 10 feet, and it's going to be the best view you've ever seen. And so we're in the car, and there's four of us. It's Beth and I and two friends of ours. And we are getting increasingly sarcastic. We're in this podunk little town, like, oh, yeah, it's the best view of Hawaii right here. Yeah, we're basically driving through Newtown. Like, oh, this is what it felt like. Oh, we're turning in. Oh, it's a subdivision. Here we are in Ivy Hills. You know, it's not a, not a bad neighborhood, but it's not the best view of Hawaii. And so we're here. Oh, don't worry, guys. Stop sign. 20 more seconds. It's going to be the best view we've ever seen. We're laughing and cutting on. 10 seconds. Turn left. There's the house. Yep. Okay, guys. Three seconds. We're all going to be quiet. Get ready, guys. Three seconds. One, two, three. And all of us shut our mouth and it was the most beautiful sight more than 360 degree view of of uh, sunset gigantic three-story rock with a hole in it water shooting through it in the middle it was gorgeous in the presence of something great we shut our mouth wow wow in the same way we do that with a piece of art or a beautiful sunset job brings god brings job in the presence of this massive animal called the behemoth he says, when you're in the presence of something great, like an animal, you're going to shut your mouth. You're going to have a sense of humility. <gasps> Here's what he says about the behemoth. He says, the behemoth, behold Job the behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. Now, it's not a hippo. You'll find in a second. The closest we have today is a hippo. It's a cross between maybe a hippo or an alligator or an extinct animal. We don't know what it is. Whatever it is, it's massive. It's the behemoth. He eats grass like an ox. His strength is in his hips, massive hip muscles. His power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. That's why it can't be a hippo. It's got this tail like a cedar tree. Why some people think it's an alligator or an extinct animal. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs are bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. So whatever this is at his time, it was the biggest, baddest, bulkiest beast ever. In fact, the word, that's a behemoth! comes out of the book of Job. If ever somebody say, well, I don't know what that is. That's a behemoth. It's this idea of this massive, the largest animal you can imagine. And God says, come here. Let's look at the behemoth. When you're in the presence of the behemoth, 
You get real quiet. You don't want to make too much sound in case it's going to come stopping you. You bring a little humility to the table. Whoa, that thing's monstrous. That thing's huge. That thing could kill me. He said, if you do that with an animal or a sunset or a piece of art, why is it you come into my presence and you just sort of blabber on like you know everything about the universe? Let's bring some humility here. So again, we don't know if it's an alligator or a hippo, but here's sort of a picture of two of them fighting, just to give you an idea of, of you. Everyone thinks hippos are so cute. They actually are the most deadly animal. They kill 50 humans a year in Africa. Here's one taking on an alligator. I mean, these are massive beasts. And if the Department of Natural Resources told us today, hey, before you leave today, just want to let you know, a hippo or alligator is loose in the building. Wouldn't it change the way you enact? Like every movie, what happens is, ah! No. You don't want to be the loud one, right? That the alligator goes after. I'm like, I'm sneaking around, being real quiet. In the same way, when you recognize God's power and his presence, it should bring some quietness and some humility to you. I saw this week they came across one of the largest uh, sharks ever found. Somebody jumps in the water to take a picture with it. Like, right? like if, if, if somebody says, hey, largest shark ever found, are you jumping in with a wetsuit? I don't care what that's made of. I think it's going to bite me in half. This friend of mine was telling me a few years ago, he was in Hawaii doing some scuba diving, and he came across a shark, and all of a sudden the shark saw him. And he's like, you know, trying not to let bubbles come up. <gasps> trying to do anything to get attention, Right? He suddenly was quiet. He's hiding behind a, you know, it's a piece of coral reef, trying to make sure the shark doesn't find him. Beth and I had that happen at Milford. We were at Milford Theater uh, a couple years ago, actually. And as we come out of the movie theater, all we see is crowds of people running past us, and we hear, she's got a gun. And you read about this stuff on TV, but it never happened to you. And all of a sudden, we're very quiet. We're trying to assess the situation. We're moving along the walls, trying to figure out where, who, whatever is. We make our way out. We're just about to go to the front door, and the people are still taking tickets. I said, hey, what's going on? The person giving tickets is like, we heard there's somebody with a gun in one of the theaters. I'm like, why are you here? <laughs> and so we, we snuck out. We're quietly looking, assessing the thing. We get in our car. We call the police and came out the next couple of days that it was actually an undercover police officer who had dropped their gun, and it wasn't. But, man, I remember in the presence of danger, suddenly getting very quiet, very contemplative, very aware. Imagine if you're an investment person, you're giving a presentation on how to do investments, and you're suddenly speaking, and you're an expert, and you've researched, and you're all prepared, and as you're about to give the presentation, you notice Warren Buffett comes in the back seat and sits down. You're like, ooh. Now, it doesn't mean you weren't prepared. It doesn't mean that you don't have good things to say. But just the presence of somebody who might be uh, an industry leader brings some humility to what you say, doesn't it? So what does it mean for you and I to, instead of running our mouth, run into God's arms? Say, I want to run into your arms. And I want to say, I don't understand exactly what's happening. I don't like a lot of things that are happening, but I just want to run into your arms. Zig Ziglar tells the story of Bill McCarthy. Bill McCarthy was a clinical psychologist who was an expert in his field. And yet he started going through a time of depression in his own life. And he would typically be able to do it to himself what he'd done to many other people, talk himself out of it. But he found his life was more ebbing than flowing. And he just could not get himself out of these thoughts. He couldn't get himself out of this brokenness that was happening in his life. As he was doing that, he just got more and more frustrated that he couldn't snap himself out of it. He didn't really like self-help books. He saw them as far inferior to educational academic books, but he was desperate. He picked up Zig Ziglar's book, Meet You at the Top, 
And immediately he thought, this new age hippie named like Zig Ziglar. Found out later he just was kind of a guy who looked just like him. And so he's like, well, I guess I'll read it. As he read the book, he was struck that he felt like he was talking to a friend. Zig Ziglar's books are all based on biblical principles. He's a strong Christian. And yet they're told in parable form or metaphor form and really helping people. And Bill McCarthy began to, in reading his book, see this reader as a friend he never had and always wanted. Here's what he said. Bill said that his book told it how it was and affirmed who he in his brokenness was. He felt that I connected with him and became the friend he'd never met. He said that I spoke with authority and that I disciplined his character with love. Bill came to know the power of genuine and unconditional love and acceptance. Bill was encouraged. His thinking and behavior were challenged and many of his preconceptions began to shift. With a shift came a new openness to listen to what his preconceptions were even open to what scripture might say about it. Bill McCarthy, MacArthur rather, felt affirmed and is now driven by purpose in his life. His difficulties didn't magically disappear, but his loser's limp did. He began to take ownership of his shortcomings, like making his life and his work his idol and having an elevated opinion of himself and his specialized services. And he began to recognize that it was through his weakness and brokenness that he was becoming stronger. And the strength is a God-given strength and given for purpose. And he and Zig Ziglar became friends. He had not been open to God or scripture or self-help books or that kind of religious nonsense until he went through pain and something that he was an expert in he couldn't fix. He ran into God's arms, into brokenness, rather than running his mouth. The second thing we do in the presence of something great is we don't just shut our mouths. We actually learn how to rethink our taming abilities. How often do we think we can tame certain habits We think we can tame anything in our life. Because we're an expert in this area, we must be an expert in all areas. And that overconfidence becomes a huge problem. We are overconfident, legitimately so in one area, and we think that confidence translates to every other area. We think we can tame anything. We think we can fix anything. We think we can solve anything. And God turns to Job and says, hey, let's talk about how to tame the behemoth, the behemoth. Can you tame that thing, he says? He says, let's go look at the behemoth again. Only he who made him, God God says, I am the one who made him, and only I can bring him near the sword. Let's observe the behemoth in its natural habitat for a moment. Surely the mountains yield food for him, and all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in the the covert of reeds and marsh. He, He lives in the water. That's why some people think it's an alligator or hippo. They're living in the water all the time. And yet, they are so massive, obviously bigger than the hippo or the alligator, whatever this creature is, because uh, while it's in the, in the reeds and marsh, the lotus trees cover him with their shade, the willows by the brook surround him. The, indeed, the river can rage. It can be like overflowing, water flowing everywhere. It doesn't even move him. He's not disturbed by a raging river. He is confident, though the Jordan River gushes into his mouth. Though he takes it in his eyes or pierces his nose with a snare, you can't tame the behemoth. And many of us in our industries, we are lion tamers. But we've got to come to the humility of realizing we're not life tamers. And life is a lot more difficult than a lion. And we might have certain habits in our life, things that we think we can manage, that people don't know about, 
think we can sort of keep in check because of how talented and smart and clever we are. We can hide that bank account and hide that relationship and we deserve this and it's okay because I'm taming it. I've got it taken care of. No one's going to find out about it. It's not going to get too big. It's not going to hurt anybody. I'm only hurting myself. We think we can tame these things. And then we think we can tame God. God, you do my bidding. You owe me. We're the tamers. And part of his encounter with the behemoth is God saying, you need to rethink your taming abilities. You are way overconfident in thinking you can tame me or tame life or tame these habits. I was with a family recently, and we were going through kind of a family crisis situation. And somebody who in the past had been very, very self-reliant, had an expert in everything, and everything had blown up around him. And as we're having this discussion, what struck me most was the sense of, reliance and humility listen i don't know how we're going to solve this but i'm here to walk through the mess with you listen i don't know how we're going to solve this but i care and and i want to just help us try to figure it out there was such a unique humility high-powered high-caliber person but through the pain of life had started to say we got to depend on god to do this because we tried it our way and it didn't work I don't know how many of you uh, watch uh, any of the shows, uh, the automobile shows on on Amazon, but my my son loves all of them. Recently, there's a show where they went down to Colombia. Went down to Colombia, and they found that uh, the drug lord, Pablo Escobar, (laughs) is running this massive drug empire. He decided what he really needed in Colombia was a personal zoo. Eh, A personal zoo. So at the height of his drug empire, he actually had imported into Colombia his own private zoo with giraffes and hippos. So there's no hippos in South America, but he brought them over, smuggled them in, and he's got his own private zoo where he's going to manage and contain his hippos. And he did. He had four of them. And then, as his empire came crumbling down, people didn't necessarily take care of or manage or keep the doors shut on the hippo cages, and there's now hippos going wild all over Colombia. They now estimate there's somewhere between 40 to 50. They're considered one of the most dangerous animals in Africa, killing 50 humans a year. And now, with no natural predators in Colombia, they are killing people off by the dozens. And here's somebody who thought, he could contain for his own private use, oh, just a hippo, they're only one to three tons, what's a big deal, they look so cute. Look at Fiona, she's wonderful, just don't let her bite you in half. And I'm telling you, we do the same thing. We've got some private habit, we've got our own little hippo, oh, it's fine, not a big deal, nobody will find out, it's just a secret. And we can manage it for a while. And so it creates the delusion that we're pretty good at managing our habits and our secrets. And our... But eventually that habit gets away from us. It's a drug habit. It's an alcohol habit. It's not just something you enjoy doing. It's something you have to do. And those hippos take over your whole life. And you finally come to the place you're saying, wow, I thought I could manage anything, but I can't manage this. God, I need something bigger than me and bigger than my hippo and bigger than my secrets and bigger than my brokenness. God, help. And God said, only I can tame the behemoth. He goes on to the next chapter, introduces Job to another beast called the Leviathan. And the Leviathan, he says, same thing. Can you tame the Leviathan? Can you uh, draw out Leviathan with a hook? Oh, you want to stick a hook in his mouth? 
You want to snare his tongue with a line that you can lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? His point's the same. You think you can tame things that are untamable. And then those things get loose in your life and create havoc all because you didn't have a tamer, a life tamer like me to help you in your brokenness, to help you with your pride and arrogant overconfidence. When you come in the presence of something great, one, you start getting enough humility to shut your mouth. But two, you start rethinking your taming abilities. I need a power source bigger than me to tame this stuff. And lastly, in the presence of something great, Sometimes your silence is better than your words. One of the themes of the book of Job is exactly that. In the presence of something great, our silence is better than our words. Let me go back to the beginning of the book of Job. In the beginning of the book of Job, Job has had this horrific day and his friends show up. And his friends show up, and the, the first chapter we interact with his friends, they are geniuses. The Bible affirms they're genius. In fact, the Jewish community has a phrase for what they do. Job has just lost his business. He's just lost his children. He's got health problems. And his, his friends show up, and here's what happens. The three friends show up. Three friends heard all the adversity had come upon him. Each one came from his own place. They traveled to where they were. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. They made an appointment together to come and mourn with him. Job, I can't imagine a day like that. Job, I I don't even have the words. And they would mourn with him and comfort him. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And during those seven days, no one spoke a word to him. For they saw his grief was that bad. The Jewish community calls this the sitting sevens. When somebody is in grief, has lost someone, has a horrible relationship challenge going on with a child, and you know what to say, just be with them. And your silence and your presence will speak volumes. And they are geniuses when they are silent. Oh, Job, man, I'm here. I had a friend whose wife was going through cancer several years ago here at the church. And I had friends from Atlanta that flew up. They said, well, we don't really want anybody here. They flew up. And my friend's wife said, I'm just going to sit with you and hold your hand in the hospital. You don't have to talk. I'm just going to be here. She talked about how important that was to her. Because someone was just there for her. If you're a guy that just feels so unproductive, that feels like such a waste of time... But the sitting sevens is that sometimes in the presence of something great, something great that's bigger than you, like cancer, something that's big than you, like tragedy, like the loss of a child, a rebellious daughter, sometimes just sitting in silence with somebody is better than words. Because in their silence, they're geniuses. Fast forward, the minute they speak, they're complete morons. The next 30 chapters, they begin to, instead of being silent, tell Job exactly why he's suffering. It's his fault. It's his kid's fault. It must be something he did you know, years ago. And they begin, for 30 chapters of the book of Job, is all them opening their stupid mouth in the presence of something great like tragedy and telling Job how God works or how God doesn't work or how life works. We get to the end of all their pontification and all of their blabbering. And God shows up at the end, asks Job a lot of questions, shows him a lot of animals to get him humble. And then he turns to those three friends and says, out of the pool, out of the pool, 
Three of us are going to have a chat about what you said to my servant Job. What you said to my servant Job was wrong, was not right. Your karma theology was way off base, didn't apply, and just brought guilt, guilt, guilt into what was already pain, pain, pain. Which suddenly these three guys who were experts, they were philosophers, they knew how life worked, they knew what was going on. And suddenly the God appears in a whirlwind and says, shut your mouth, bad advice, bad theology, what you said was not right. And they're shutting their mouth now. And then, it's so amazing what God does. He says, by the way, I'm not happy with you, and you need some serious forgiveness for the way you just blabbered your mouth on. But tell you what we're going to do. You've been diatribing on Job for 30 chapters. I'm not going to forgive you unless you bring a certain offering, seven rams, but you've got to go to Job, who you've been blasting for being evil. And unless Job prays for you to get healing and forgiveness, I'm not going to give it to you. But if you can get Job, the guy you've been you know, ranting and raving about, to pray for you, I will forgive you and accept you. How humble are they now? 30 chapters to tell them why he's evil and wrong. And now they're like... Hey, Job. Um, could you pray for me? It turns out I'm wrong. And that's why God, I need your forgiveness. Right? Talk about humility. Eating humble pie. And Job prays for them. This suffering servant who's been through all kinds of things he didn't deserve prays for those who have piled onto his problems and offers them forgiveness. That's why the ultimate Job is Jesus in the New Testament. He's the ultimate suffering servant who was crucified and crowned of thorns placed upon his head, beard ripped out, unrecognizably beaten on a scourging post, and people yelled at him, ah, Save yourself if you are the Christ! They just mock him on, oh, The king of the Jews Let's put a sign over his head! Yet this suffering servant that endured all this pain he didn't deserve is the one who prays for us on the cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The ultimate Job is the ultimate suffering servant, Jesus, who says, despite you opening your stupid mouth, despite you thinking you know more than God, despite the fact that you can tame all these things in your life and they sort of go berserk and cause problems, I'm here. To let you know, God still wants a relationship with you. God wants to be near you. God wants to help you. And whether you're at the high point like Job was at the beginning of his life, the low point when he lost everything, or the high point at the end when God restored it, God says, I want you to come to the place that you can say to me, God, use the pain or the pleasure in my life to make me a believer. To make me a believer that you are in control Use the pain in my life to remind me that I'm broken and need you to tame the things I can't tame. Use the pain in my life to draw comfort from you when I need comfort, wisdom from you when I thought I knew it all. God, use the pain and the pleasure in my life to give you credit, not myself. Make me a believer that you can use this not as meaningless suffering, but meaningful suffering. And maybe as you've gone through this series, you've wrestled with a lot of these animals we've looked at. And you've seen yourself in Job from the different animals, different aspects of that. And maybe today's the day you want to say, God, I don't like the pain I'm in. 
I wish I wasn't in it. You don't have to give up that. We're not masochists. We're not stoics either. But to say, God, I do want you to use my successes to make me a believer that you're the giver of all good gifts. And God, use my pain to teach me what comfort and perseverance looks like. So before we do this final song, let me give you a chance to do that. You want to bow your heads and I'll just pray over you if you want. God, there's a lot of pain represented here in this room. And some of those pains are very secret pains. They're unknown to other people. But God, we ask that you would make each one of us believers in you again. For those of us who, who got de-churched, for those of us who gave up on you and decided that evil meant you don't exist, God, would you breathe a spark of hope to believe that you are maybe even real? To believe that you really could love? To believe that you really are involved? To believe that you care? And maybe you want in the quietness of your own heart to say that. Just say, God, use my pain and use my pleasure to make me a believer today. I ask the suffering servant to offer me forgiveness and acceptance. In Jesus' name. You know, one of the most powerful things that Christianity did that overcame the Greek and Roman Empire, according to Polycarp and Ignatius as they were writing, the Greeks and Romans said, you will know a superior philosophy. The best philosophy is that that prepares you to take on life. And Polycarp noted, and so did Ignatius, that when the plagues began to hit um, early on in the first couple centuries, there were plagues and people were dying all over the place, thousands, thousands of them. But the Christians, the Christian nurses and the Christian doctors who had the means to to run out of the areas of plague like everyone else was doing, the Christian ones stayed in the community near the sick and dying because they didn't fear death. They knew Jesus had defeated death for them. So they were willing to give their life for others, to take on suffering, to take on risk, to take on difficulty. And the Roman Greek Empire began to find this new family of Christians. And the Greek and Romans began to say, listen, I don't know if I believe in the whole resurrected God thing, but when I see the way they use pain to become more courageous, I'm interested in that. Polycarp said the same thing in his writing. He said, Christians had the ability to, even when they were burned at the stake, thrown into lions, they could suffer better than others. Why? Because they didn't like death, but they also knew death had been defeated. And Christianity began to transform the historical world of the Greeks and Romans because embedded in the book of Job and embedded in the message of Christianity is that God can use evil, even an evil cross-crucifixion, and bring about good from it. And even though death, the worst life can do to you, is not the end, it's the beginning of a whole new life. And that message was one of hope, that you can trust God wherever you are, whatever you face, to say, God, whatever I'm facing, make me a believer and use my brokenness to your glory and your credit. Let's listen together. As we wrap up our In the Wild series, uh, we hope you enjoyed the series and how looking at this incredible life journey of Job and how God taught him and uh, spoke to him through these amazing creations of each of these individual uh, animals. We hope that you can learn to be a believer or explore being a believer and trusting that in the midst of pain, struggles, brokenness, and failure, that you can Be a believer and trust as I'm a believer and I trust that God is right there with you.
We hope you've enjoyed the series. If you'd like to learn more about uh, Horizon, you feel free to stop at the third door on the left uh, in the hearth room and see somebody and say hello. Uh, we hope you enjoy the series and have a great afternoon.